This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 21st, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, human scent discrimination is pegged at one trillion odors and a roundup from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society at www.aaas.org. We humans can discriminate about half a million auditory tones and several million different colors. But what about odors? Tones and colors vary along a scale, while odors vary in a different space with different intensities, different components, and different mixtures of different components. In a report this week, Andreas Keller and colleagues determined that we can discriminate at least one trillion odors. I spoke with him about where this number came from and why it is probably an underestimation. It's often said that humans can discriminate 10,000 different odors. However, everybody working with odors knows that this number is too low because it's very difficult to find two mixtures that smell the same. So we decided to test in an empirical study how many different mixtures there actually are. And we found that there are over a trillion. Okay. So why has it been so hard to pin down olfactory discrimination, this ability, you know, how many odors people can differentiate? Olfactory discrimination has been more difficult to study than, for example, color discrimination or sound discrimination because colors and sounds vary along a single dimension, mm. wavelength and frequency. Whereas for odors, there's no dimension known along which they vary. So you're saying there's a field of molecules for odor, and there's also um, mixtures of different molecules. Exactly. So instead of looking at single molecules, we looked at mixtures of molecules and looked at the overlap between two mixtures as a dimension of this odor. As you mentioned at the beginning, for a long time, the received wisdom has been that there are about 10,000 odors we can discriminate. 
Where did that number actually come from? The number of 10,000 discriminable odors comes just from a convenient method or way to talk about odors that was developed in the early 20th century. So people said there are four elementary odor qualities, fragrant, caprylic, acidic, and burnt. And then they rated along a scale of one to 10, how much like those four elementary odors, every odor smells. And then the mathematics just results in about 10,000 different odors. And that was before we knew about, say, odor receptors or, you know, the chemical nature of odor. Exactly. That was long before we knew about that. Back then, people thought there would be only four receptors or a small number of receptors for the elementary odors. Now we know that we have hundreds of different odor receptors. So in the setup for this study, can you talk a little bit about what participants were actually smelling and how they were able to indicate that they discriminated between two things? The test we used was a computerized test. So subjects would get three bottles with odors in them that were barcoded, and two of those bottles had the same odor in it. The third one had a different odor and the bottles had barcodes, and they were instructed to scan in the one that has the different smell. And so what did they actually smell like? What kind of odors were they encountering? The odors they smelled were all mixtures of 10, 20, or 30 different odors, and they were mixtures of odors at the same intensity, so none of the odors in the mixture dominated the smell, so none of them had an easily describable familiar smell. Really? So if I smelled it, I wouldn't think perfume or gasoline. I would think mysterious? You would think mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So after exposing people to all of these different odor sets, what kinds of trends did you see in the data? As expected, we saw that people are very good at discriminating those different mixtures from one another. Also, as expected, it's easier when the two mixtures have less overlap, and the more they overlap, the more difficult it gets. A trillion odors is what people can yes. now discriminate. Yes. How do these numbers compare with auditory and visual discrimination? So for tones and colors, we know how many tones and colors can be discriminated, and it's much less than the odors that can be discriminated but it may not be a fair comparison because tones can be combined to chords and colors can be combined to visual sceneries, and we don't know how many of those can be discriminated. Right. In your article, you actually say that this one trillion number is probably a lower bound. Why is the reality probably much greater than that? In reality, it's probably many more than one trillion discriminable odors because in our study, we only used 128 different components, and we only made mixtures of 10, 20, and 30. But there are many, many more odorous molecules out there, and obviously they can be mixed in far greater mixtures than the ones we tried. So the real number is much higher than one trillion. And this has nothing to do with the number of odors we can identify, obviously, if the people in the study couldn't say what they were smelling. Exactly. We are very bad at identifying odors, and there's probably very, very few that people can identify. And it depends very much on their experience. Perfumers can identify many more odors than regular people. Okay. What does this mean about our ability to actually smell things? Is it, how, what does it say about our everyday life? It's obviously not necessary in our life to smell 
trillions of different odors, and most of those stimuli that we tested, probably no human being has ever smelled before during evolution. So it's not that we need to smell all those odors, but what happened is that our olfactory system evolved to have a very good resolution to discriminate very similar smells like my baby from my neighbor's baby, milk that's still good from milk that turned bad. So those are very similar smells that only differ in few components. So we evolved to be able to make those discriminations. Mm -hmm. And as a side effect of that, we can discriminate all those other odors too. Andreas Keller, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Andreas Keller and colleagues write about odor discrimination in this week's issue. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on our fungal friends and foes. Babies and people with compromised immune systems, like those with HIV, are prone to fungal infections in their mouths caused by candida. It's also called thrush. So the question is, why does candida run amok and cause these problems? So Dave, what did the researchers look at first? So what you would imagine the researchers would look at in a case like this with candida is, do we have microbes, bacteria that are potentially battling this fungus, like they battle other microorganisms? But what was really surprising here is they found that it's actually a fungus that we harbor that is battling candida. So to get at whether this was an oral community problem, the researchers compared different mouth populations? Right. They compared 12 people with HIV and 12 people that did not have HIV. And they looked at their candida infections in their mouth. And what they found was that people who had HIV had a lot more of the candida, as you would expect, because they're having this infection problem. The people that didn't had a lot less. But what was really interesting is that the people that didn't had a much higher level of another fungus known as pachea, which the researchers speculate is actually killing off the candida. In the mouth census, the researchers noticed a correlation between high levels of pachea and lower levels of another fungus. What do they do next? Well, what they wanted to see is how is this one fungus killing the other fungus off? And they found the pachea seems to be secreting a poison, which is killing the candida. And what was even more interesting is they were able to isolate this poison, and they found it's a very powerful antifungal. When they gave it to mice that had candida infections, the extract from pachea actually killed off the infection. So does this research solve that mystery, the central mystery of why candida infections are associated with weakened immune systems? It doesn't really. All we know at this point is that these fungi seem to be battling each other and that when people have certain infections that compromise their immune system, that candida seems to get the upper hand. But what's really cool, again, is that now that we know that pachea has such a powerful effect, it may lead to a whole new class of antifungals, not just to fight candida, but also a bunch of other fungi as well. Next up, we have a story on the extinction of the last of the megafauna. The last of the giant moa birds died off about 600 years ago. The moa were large and flightless birds living peacefully in New Zealand, uninterrupted for thousands of years until people showed up and ate them all. Or so the story goes. So Dave, why was this story ever in question? 
Well, it's in question the same way a lot of species disappearances are in question, especially species disappearances that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago. We know a lot of very large animals went extinct around the time humans showed up on the scene, but we also know other things were going on around that time, volcanic eruptions, climate change, that could have also done these creatures in. And it's been really hard to pinpoint exactly what role humans played, and it's the same with the MOA. So there has been some debate. What approach did the researchers take in this study to try to resolve it? Well, what the researchers did was they actually went through a lot of MOA bones. They took 281 individual MOAs from four different species. The specimens dated anywhere from about 13,000 years ago to 602 years ago, which is right before they all disappeared. And they were looking for things like How was the population doing at the time? What did the DNA analysis suggest about how much diversity there was? The more diversity, the healthier the population, usually the more individuals you have as well. And they really want to know how healthy was this species before humans showed up. And humans showed up about 600 years ago. And so when they look at the genetic diversity and the population structure, were the birds on the decline when the people showed up? No. In fact, it looks like not only were the birds not on their way out, they were actually increasing in population size right before humans showed up on the scene. But from reading this story, not everyone is willing to blame the humans, even with this evidence in hand. Right. A lot of people just don't accept that people would have basically massacred an entire species, even though that seems to happen today. And the reason is because we just don't believe that people would be so reckless with an ecosystem. What it looks like was happening here was that Polynesians that arrived on New Zealand about 600 years ago were killing all ages of moa, the young and the old and the in-between, which is really catastrophic for a species. It means that the species really can't recover. And people would say, well, why would they do that? And the bottom line may simply be that they were trying to survive and they didn't really care about what they were doing to the moa long term. They just had to eat dinner. Finally, we have a story on judging a person by their hello. Hello, you've reached Sarah Crespi. I can't come to the phone right now. Please leave a message. Hey, this is Sarah. I'm not in. Leave it at the beep. It's like two different people. Dave, this study was about what people think of you after a simple hello. Even less information than in those little mock voicemail messages. Why would anyone think this would be an important cue? Well, Sarah, can I just say that you had me at hello? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, we already know, or scientists already knew, that we actually can tell a lot about people from the way they speak. And when we listen to people reciting book passages or just talking generally, after a little while, we get a sense of how trustworthy they are, maybe even how attractive they are. Even if we can't see them, we infer a lot of things from how people talk. What these researchers want to see is how little could we hear and still accurately make those inferences. So how did they expose participants to many different hellos, and how were the hellos rated? Well, they had 64 Scottish undergraduates, half male, half female, reading an unfamiliar passage, which included a telephone conversation. So they had to say hello somewhere in their recording. Then they played these recordings back for another group of students. And they asked the students, based on how these people said hello, how would you rate their trustworthiness, their dominance, their attractiveness, their warmth, qualities like that? And what was really interesting is based on that mere 300 to 500 millisecond clip of hello, 
the students tended to agree on which speakers were most trustworthy, which were more dominant, things like that. And just so you can play along at home, here is one of the hellos that was rated very trustworthy. Hello. And here's one that was rated untrustworthy. Hello. So what are the qualities that these trustworthy or untrustworthy voices have in common or don't have in common? So men who raised the tone of their voices and women who alternated the pitch of their voices were rated as more trustworthy. Men with lower-pitched voices were generally perceived as more dominant. And the opposite was actually true for women. Those with higher average pitch were actually rated as more dominant. What's really amazing is that people's judgments converged. When they heard a low voice, they thought dominant, that kind of thing. Is there some evolutionary backing to this? Well, you can imagine if you need to make a snap judgment about a person, you don't want to have to have them read all of Moby Dick before you decide how trustworthy they are. You want to make that decision as quickly as possible. So it makes evolutionary sense that we would be able to infer these characteristics just from a single word. Now, I don't know about ability, but maybe just habit. This seems like a warning. Watch out about making those tough judgments one second into a conversation. Or just be very careful how you say hello. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we have a story about what may be the oldest evidence of modern humans mating with Neanderthals. Also a story about how stress may protect us against Alzheimer's and other diseases involving dementia. For Science Insider, we've got a story about why the U.S. and Mexico are about to unleash a flood in Arizona. Also a story about the growing controversy regarding some stem cell papers. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog at Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.